Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 93, the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew chapter 26 concluded with a, a mixed group of Jewish religious leadership representing both the temple and the synagogue authorities gathering at nighttime in an official capacity at the high priest Caiaphas' home with one purpose in mind, and that was to find false allegations against Yeshua so that they could produce an heir of legitimacy to convicting and executing him. To their relief, after several aborted attempts to find cause for their predetermined outcome, the frustrated high priest bellowed at Christ, by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus, after having remained silent at a series of false charges levied against him by lying witnesses who couldn't even get their stories straight, affirmed what the high priest had just said. But he went even further in pronouncing an eschatological prophecy. That is, big word, that is, it's a prophecy about the end times. Prophecy about the end times concerning himself. And he said, one day you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Blasphemy, says the high priest. And the other members of the Sanhedrin agreed. Collectively, they pronounced the death sentence. Now, what we need to know to help us understand why chapter 27 begins as it does by the Sanhedrin taking Yeshua to the Roman governor, Pilate, is that while they could pronounce the death penalty for a Jew committing a religious offense within the Jewish law system, they couldn't carry it out. See, this was reserved only for the Roman government to decide and to do. So Yeshua's fate was sealed. God's will was advancing rapidly. And at the same time, his disciples had all deserted him and renounced their faith in him. Now, to emphasize the earnestness at which they, and especially Peter, had fallen away in their trust. Peter denied even knowing who Yeshua was, and then he did so in an escalating level of conviction, from a simple denial to swearing an oath that he had no association with him, to finally pronouncing a curse upon himself if he was not sincere about not knowing Christ. It was a Jewish custom, you see, that to claim or state something three times was to make it the strongest possible degree of denial or affirmation. The point being that this was not an issue of 11 frightened disciples hiding the truth from the authorities because they were scared but secretly retaining their loyalty. Rather, it was exactly as Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. There he says, Yeshua said to them, Tonight you will all lose faith in me. As the Tanakh says, I will strike the shepherd dead, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The twelve disciples to the last man, had all reverted to their former spiritual state, just as they were before they had ever met Yeshua up in the Galilee. To put it in Western Christian jargon, they had lost their salvation by denying their Savior. Let's move on to Matthew chapter 27. Open your Bibles and read along with me. The book of Matthew, chapter 27. We're going to read it all. It's a long chapter. 
Matthew chapter 27. I'll give you a second to get there. Matthew chapter 27. Here we go. Early in the morning, all the head Kohanim, the head priests and elders, met to plan how to bring about Yeshua's death. Then they put him in chains and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judah, who had betrayed him, Judas, saw that Yeshua had been condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the head priest and elders, saying, I sinned in betraying an innocent man to death. What's that to us, they answered. That's your problem. And hurling the pieces of silver into the sanctuary, he left and then went off and hanged himself. The head Kohanim took the silver coins and said, it is prohibited to put this into the temple treasury because it's blood money. So they decided to use it to buy the potter's field as a cemetery for foreigners. This is how it came to be called the field of blood, a name it still bears. Then what Zechariah, Zechariah, the prophet spoke was fulfilled, and they took the 30 silver coins, which was the price the people of Israel had agreed to pay for him, and used them to buy the potter's field, just as the Lord directed me. Meanwhile, Yeshua was brought before the governor, and the governor put this question to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yeshua answered, The words are yours. But when he was accused by the head priest and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Don't you hear all these charges they're making against you? But to the governor's great amazement, he did not say a single word in reply to those accusations. It was the governor's custom during a festival to set free one prisoner, whomever the crowd asked for. There was at that time a notorious prisoner being held named Yeshua Barabbas. So when a crowd had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to set free for you, Barabba or Yeshua, called the Messiah? For he understood that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. And while he was sitting in court, his wife sent him a message. Leave that innocent man alone. Today, in a dream, I suffered terribly because of him. But the head Kohanim persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas' release and to have Yeshua executed on the stake. Which of the two do you want me to set free for you? asked the governor. Barabba, they answered. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Yeshua called the Messiah? And they all said, Put him to death on the stake. Put him to death on the stake. And when he asked why, what crime has he committed, they shouted all the louder, Put him to death on the stake. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, My hands are clean of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. And then he released them to, released to them Barabba. But Yeshua, after having him whipped, he handed over to be executed on a stake. The governor's soldiers took Yeshua into the headquarters building, and the whole battalion gathered around him. They stripped off his clothes and put on him a scarlet robe. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head and put a stick in his right hand. Then they kneeled down in front of him and made fun of him. Hail to the king of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they used the stick to beat him around the head. And when they had finished ridiculing him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on him, and led him away to be nailed to the execution stake. As they were leaving, they met a man from Cyrene named Shimon, and they forced him to carry Yeshua's execution stake. And when they arrived at the place called Gulgota, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine mixed with bitter gall to drink, but after tasting it, he would not drink it. And after they had nailed him to the stake, they divided his clothes among them by throwing dice. And then they sat down to keep watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written notice stating the charge against him. This is Yeshua, 
the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were placed on execution stakes with him, one on the right, one on the left. People passing by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you can destroy the temple, can you, and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself if you're the Son of God and come down from the stake. And likewise, the head priest jeered at him, along with the Torah teachers and the elders. Well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. So he's king of Israel, is he? Then let him come down from the stake. Then we'll believe him. He trusted God, so he let him rescue him, let him rescue him if he wants. And after all, he did say, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers nailed up with him, insulted him in the same way. From noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, all the land was covered with darkness. At about three, Yeshua uttered a loud cry, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? And on hearing this, some of the bystanders said, he's calling for Eliyahu, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and soaked it in vinegar and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, wait, let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. But Yeshua, again crying out in a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. At that moment, the parquet in the temple was ripped in two. From top to bottom, there was an earthquake with rocks splitting apart. Also, the graves were opened, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And after Yeshua rose, they came out of the graves and went into the holy city, where many people saw them. And when the Roman officer and those with him who were keeping watch over Yeshua saw the earthquake and what was happening, they were awestruck. And they said, he really was a son of God. There were many women there looking on from a distance, and they had followed Yeshua from the Galil, helping him. Among them were Miriam from Magdala, Miriam, the mother of Yaakov and Yosef, and the mother of Zavdai's sons. Towards evening, there came a wealthy man from Ramatiaim named Yosef, who was himself a disciple of Yeshua. He approached Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Yosef took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen sheet, and laid it in his own tomb, which he had recently cut out of the rock. After rolling a large stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, he went away. Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam stayed there sitting opposite the grave. Next day after the preparation, the head priest and the Pharisees went together to Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was still alive, after three days I will be raised. Therefore, order that the grave be made secure till the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he was raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you may have your guard. Go and make the grave as secure as you know how. So they went and made the grave secure by sealing the stone and putting the guard on watch. <clears throat> chapter 27 could be said to be a chapter of ironies. The first irony we should note is that the great end times judge, Yeshua, has been judged by the very people he's going to judge sometime in the future. The opening words of this chapter, early in the morning, those words are tied to the final words of chapter 26, because there it says, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. That is, the rooster crowing, you see, is Yeshua saying, when? What time of day? Peter will disown him. It'll be just as daylight's breaking. So this connects to the first words of chapter 27 early in the morning. Much is happening in a very short span of time. Many Bible scholars explain that, that, that what we're reading about now is a second trial, or perhaps Christ's actual trial. 
with what we saw happen in chapter 26 as kind of a, a pre-trial hearing. And while we probably ought not to insert more meaning than is actually intended, it's probably best to view this not as a matter of a second trial, all right, but rather as a second meeting that now includes the entire Sanhedrin, whereas the first meeting had only some of its members present. So the second meeting was not about determining Yeshua's guilt or what his sentence should be, but rather it was working out the details of just how to be certain that he would be put to death at the hands of the Romans at the same time that they could appear to have been following both Jewish and Roman legal procedure. So by putting Jesus in chains, handing him over to Pontius Pilate, this fulfilled Christ's prophecy of Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 19. In it, Yeshua said to his disciples, we are now going to go up to Yushalayim, where the Son of Man will be handed over to the head priest and the Torah teachers. They will sentence him to death and turn him over to the Goyim, to the Gentiles, who will jeer at him and beat him and execute him on a stake as a criminal, but on the third day he will be raised. Now Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a man <clears throat> who's known in history outside the Bible. He was at different points the prefect over the Roman provinces of, of uh, Judea, Idumea, and uh, Samaria. And he ruled from 26 to 36 AD, so we have a 10-year window during which time Jesus was executed. No matter all the attempts over the centuries of trying to pin down the exact year of his death, we'll probably never know for certain. Now, Pilate was known to be a cruel man who hated the Jews. Against the wishes of the emperor, Pilate would find ways to aggravate and, and rile up the Jewish people so he would have cause to punish them. He forcibly took money from the temple to build an aqueduct for Jerusalem. He brought the standards and shields of the Roman legion into Jerusalem that bore the image of the emperor, knowing how passionate the Jews were against images of men, especially when they were hailed as gods. He is even said to have murdered Galileans on the temple grounds at the same time they were slaughtering their animals for holy sacrifices on the temple altar. The Jewish historian Philo says Pilate was naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. He ordered the execution of countless Jews without the benefit of trial, nearly always by crucifixion, because it was the most horrible, the most humiliating way to die that was known to him. In verse 3, Matthew takes this short detour to deal again with Judas. It, it seems that similar to Peter, really, Judas suddenly has this bout of regret and guilt once he heard that Yeshua had been condemned to death. So he tried to return the 30 pieces of silver he had received to the senior priests that had given it to him, saying that he had betrayed an innocent man as though this outcome was a surprise to him. The callous priest and his fellow senior priests replied they had no interest in his remorse or his money. And whatever he did didn't concern them in the least. His guilt was his problem. Judas threw the silver coins at them and went off and hanged himself. Now, interestingly, Matthew's is the only gospel that records Judas' death. The only other New Testament mention of Judas dying is found in the book of Acts. Book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. During this period, when the group of believers numbered about 120, Kepha, Peter, 
stood up and addressed his fellow believers, brothers. Birak HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, spoke in advance through David about Judah, meaning Judas, and these words of the Tanakh had to be fulfilled. He was guide for those who arrested Yeshua. He was one of us. He had been assigned a part of our work. With the money Judas received for his evil deed, he bought a field, and there he fell to his death, and his body swelled up and burst open, and all of his insides spilled out. And this became known to everyone in Jerusalem, so they called that field uh, Hakal Dema, field of blood. And while both accounts now speak of Judas's death, clearly there's differences in the circumstances here. Although it may have more to do, I think, with the aspects of the aftermath of his death rather than the manner of it. That is, Matthew's just straightforward in saying that Judas committed suicide by hanging, while Luke in Acts says Judas's body swelled up and burst open. You know, while I don't want to get gruesome or too graphic, the reality is that after a few days of hanging dead from a noose, indeed his body would have swelled up from the gases of decay building up in his body cavity, and when they cut it down and hit the ground, it could have resulted in his body splitting open. Either way, it was known that Judas died and his death was undignified, to say the least. Now, you know, different branches of Christianity have different takes on Judas's mindset and even his state of salvation when he died. Note how Luke makes it clear that Judas was just as much a part of the original 12 disciples as any other by saying he was one of us. And that Judas too had an assignment to be part of the work of the disciples. So for a time, Judas was a follower of Jesus. See, there, there is no hint, not even in hindsight, of the New Testament authors of Judas not being completely sincere in his faith. Matthew speaks of Judas's regret for what he did, lying and, and helping to, to condemn an innocent man. But you know, regret is in no way repentance. Yet we find that some Christian institutions profess a regaining of salvation by means of such regret. Once again, this seems to be more of a way of spinning a pre-existing denominational doctrine and tradition rather than accurately reporting what is painfully obvious in the Bible. Yeshua himself pronounces in advance the damnation of Judas for what he will do back in verse 24 of chapter 26. He says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him had he never been born. This as opposed to how Yeshua does not damn the remaining 11 disciples, but even says he'll meet up with them again after his resurrection in the Galilee. Now, this seems to be a prophecy of regained faith and thus reclaimed salvation, which history confirms. Now, I'm going to repeat something I've said on numerous occasions because it is pivotal to our understanding as regards maintaining our salvation. Nothing is more dangerous to our eternal future with God than the once saved, always saved doctrine of the mostly evangelical church denominations. Now, while sounding lovely, lovely, it is biblically, factually, spiritually incorrect. Nothing could be more the opposite of what Christ teaches, what other New Testament writers warn against, what we're reading about right now here in Matthew. The once saved, always saved doctrine implies that once someone has approached God and said the sinner's prayer, determined at that moment to be a Christ follower, then no change of heart, no lack of obedience to God, 
no lack of good fruit in his or her life has any bearing on his or her salvation. Even publicly disowning Christ, as did Peter, will not be taken seriously in heaven. The doctrinal rebuttal to my position on this matter is always that anyone that would pray to receive Messiah Yeshua and then later, whether it's weeks or years, completely fall away from him was never a believer in the first place. He or she was something else. Something else, something we don't find in the Bible, by the way. Someone called a pretender. Not only is this idea illogical, it defies the plain scriptural teachings of several New Testament writers. Judas went to his eternal death, judged by Christ. Had the other 11 disciples, for some reason, died after firmly renouncing Jesus an hour or so after the Last Supper event, prior to their regaining of their faith not long after his resurrection, they too would have been eternally damned. See, the good news in all this is that should you, should any of us, fall completely away from the faith, you can, with proper repentance and sincerity, be accepted back into the kingdom of God. Even Ezekiel 18.21, however, if the wicked person repents of all the sins he committed, keeps my laws, does what, what is lawful and right, then he will certainly live and not die. See, our feelings of guilt and regret are not good enough. Repentance means to turn. Repentance means to chart a different course, a righteous course. In your mind, and in your behavior. It has to be the right kind, the godly kind, not any kind that seems right to you or to the present world order. Jesus outlined in several of his parables and illustrations about the kingdom of heaven and who the members, those who are saved, will be and what is expected of those who hope to be members? It amounts to more than mouthing the words of temporary sincerity. If you are wondering if you are destined for the kingdom or alternatively for the lake of fire, I urge you to look again at those parables that we studied together to help you find out. Well, following the recounting of Judas's suicide, there is a paragraph on exactly what the priests did with the money that Judas gave back to them. They rightly say they can't put it back into the temple treasury because now it's blood money. What's blood money? Well, on one level, it's money paid that purposely leads to the death of someone. On another level, the more usual level, it means money paid to bribe someone to cause the death of an, of a, uh, of an innocent person. I think that's how it's meant here. See, when Judas tries to return the blood money, says that he betrayed an innocent man to death, the priests say, not our problem. I think they fully expected Judas to end his own life. In the Torah, should a liar's testimony lead to the conviction of the innocent, the liar is to receive the same penalty that they falsely accused did. Boy, wouldn't that change our court system. Judas, the liar, the betrayer was subject to death for his despicable act. Deuteronomy 27.25, a curse means death on anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. 
all the people are to say, Amen. The senior priest, not the high priest, took the coins that Judas returned and bought a field where they could bury foreign visitors to Jerusalem. Now, the Greek word that's usually translated to foreigners or strangers is, is uh, xenos. And it has a wide range of meanings from strangers to guests. Now, some suggest that it means Jewish visitors. It's for Jewish visitors to Jerusalem who obviously die there. I'm pretty doubtful of that. See, it was known that thousands of Gentiles flocked to Jerusalem to see that incredible temple that Herod had rebuilt at just this enormous expense. Now, I suspect that due to the wicked source of the money and that it was acknowledged as blood money, that the field purchased as a cemetery was probably not used for Jews. It is because of the unclean blood money that the cemetery came to be known as the field of blood. This act, too, was done to fulfill prophecy. Now, what's a bit odd is Matthew says that it was a prophecy of Jeremiah. That doesn't seem to hold true. Rather, we find, a highly, find it to be a highly paraphrased verse or two from Zechariah. In Zechariah 11, 11 through 15, we read, On that day when it was broken, the most miserable of the sheep who paid attention to me knew that this was indeed a message from Adonai. And I said to them, If it seems good to you, give my wages. Give me my wages. If not, don't. So they weighed out my wages, 30 silver shekels. Concerning that princely sum at which they valued me, Adonai said, Throw it into the treasury. So I took the 30 silver shekels and threw them into the treasury in the house of Adonai. Then I snapped into uh, my other staff um, bound together in order to break up the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Adonai said to me, this time take the equipment of a worthless shepherd. Now, look, <laughs> it's been a lot of academic head scratching about Matthew 26.9. Even when we look to that section I just read from Zechariah, it's pretty difficult to connect it to Judas. That said, as we look at the original Hebrew of Zechariah, we need to know something. And it is that the Hebrew name Judah is most properly translated into English as Judah. Judas is kind of a twisted secondary translation of Judah. There is no known Jewish name of Judas. So I doubt the original language of Matthew's gospel that was Hebrew actually even had it that way. All translations, by definition, is an editing of the original. Now, to sum it up, it's a stretch, I think, to make Zechariah 11 explain what happened with Judas. And there are numerous scholarly speculations as to why even Jeremiah is said to have been the prophet and not Zechariah. It's just not worth our time to wrestle with what can't be known. There is a scientific proverb, by the way, used in these kinds of conundrums. It would be good for us to remember. It's called Occam's Razor. The proverb is that in the end, the simplest solution to any problem is usually the best one. I think the problem of Jeremiah being mentioned instead of Zechariah is most likely a scribal error that came later. Well, after Matthew's detour to include what happened to Judas, verse 11 brings us back to Yeshua's march to the cross. Jesus is taken to Pilate. Pilate asks him, is he the king of the Jews? Notice that Pilate's concern has nothing to do with the Sanhedrin's accusation of blasphemy. However, I have little doubt that the politically astute Caiaphas and his close associates knew that telling Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews versus telling him that Jesus had committed blasphemy well, that would stand a far better chance of getting Christ executed. 
Pilate was all too aware of the Jewish belief that a Messiah would come in the mold of King David and lead a successful rebellion against Rome. Thus, for the high priest to tell Pilate that Yeshua claimed to be the king of the Jews wasn't even really a lie. Because for the high priest, that's exactly what Yeshua's admission as being the Jewish Messiah meant to him. And if it hadn't occurred to you yet, just think about this for a second. It's kind of time for us to notice that the high priest, the senior priests, all the highest officials of the synagogue, they didn't really want a Messiah. Had no interest in a Messiah. Why? Especially not in the one of the mold of the long-held Jewish thought of it. See, these men had lucrative positions, a power of wealth. They lived very comfortable lives. A rebellion against Rome would have been totally counterproductive for them. This is the entire reason they wanted Jesus or any would-be Messiah eliminated. See, it was only the common Jews that wanted a Messiah. Jesus affirms Pilate's question if he is king of the Jews. Pilate needs to hear nothing more. In the Roman Empire, there can only be one king, Caesar. So for Pilate, this is sedition, plain and simple. The same crowd of wicked Jewish leadership were there with Christ and Pilate and so started peppering Yeshua with more accusations, needlessly, I would argue, to which he won't respond. Pilate, he's taken aback. Jesus won't defend himself. On the one hand, he's refusing to dignify nonsense. <laughs> On the other, he is determined to submit himself to the will of his Father, and that will is for Yeshua to die on the cross. Well, verse 15 explains that during Pilate's tenure as prefect, at the time when Jerusalem was overrun with Jews for Passover, he would set one prisoner free, apparently as chosen by the crowd on a voice vote. Here we encounter another and little-noticed irony. There was apparently a notorious revolutionary in custody, likely a Sicari, that Mark also identifies as a murderer, a rebel whom our Bibles, most English Bibles call Barabbas. Pilate asked the crowd, who would they rather he pardon and release, Barabbas, or Yeshua. Now, before we proceed, let's spend a few minutes about a topic that I'll call what's in a name. See, the Bible is positively crowded with names. And the first name, last name, nomenclature, so common to us in the West, that didn't exist in ancient times. Rather, it was usually a name and then some kind of designation uh, might connect the name person to a particular family, just as likely a family industry, or more likely to just the name of that person's father. For instance, Simon, son of Jacob, something like that. Just as in almost any culture among the Jews, there were favored names that got chosen far more often than the others. Shimon, Simon. Yaakov, Jacob, and Yeshua. Jesus, to name a few, were the three most popular around Yeshua's time. In fact, according to Rabbi Joseph Shulam and others, Yeshua was the second most popular male name used in the first century among Jews. It was no different for women, with Miriam, Mary, and Elisheva, Elizabeth, particularly popular. So let's take a look at the name Barabbas. 
It becomes a lot easier to identify if we simply remove the S at the end of the name, a letter that does not belong there, but had to have been added in Christian Bibles at some unknown point. Barabba, then, is really two words in Hebrew, bar and abba. Bar is actually Aramaic, and it means son or son of. Abba, most people that have been following any of these lessons at all, knows that it means father. So this man's name, as we have it literally is, son of the father. Was that his real name? Son of the father? I doubt it. First, because there is no attestation to the name Bar Abba anywhere in Jewish literature at any time in the ancient past. And second, because no Hebrew man would have held the formal name of Abba. Abba, father, was used occasionally as a title, but never as a name. Now, interestingly, in some of the oldest scriptural Greek fragments of Matthew that have been found and attested to, by the way, by the early church fathers Origen and Chrysostom, among others, Bar Abba is further identified with the name Yeshua. That is, just as we correctly find it in the complete Jewish Bible in verse 16, Matthew calls this notorious prisoner Yeshua Bar Abba. Jesus, Son of the Father. Can we not also view Christ as Yeshua bar Abba? Jesus, Son of the Father, the Holy Father, God the Father. So essentially, we have two Yeshua bar Abbas before us. The one is a rebel and a murderer, the other is divine without sin and is going to meekly die on the cross to save those Jews standing before him that are currently clamoring for his death. The irony is thick. And unfortunately, once again, translation, perhaps a hint of something intentional, hides this rather surprising part of the account from our view. As the preeminent New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger notes, there is little doubt that the more ancient fragments of Barabbas' name written as Yeshua Barabba is correct. Later Gentile Christian editors would have had far more motive to erase the name Jesus from Barabbas' name than to add, add to it. Verse 18 explains, the Pilate was fully aware that Yeshua in reality was no threat, that he was only being thrown to the wolves because the temple and synagogue authorities were jealous of him, jealous of the, in the political sense, fearing Christ's growing popularity. Well, then something awfully strange occurs. Pilate's wife comes to him during this so-called trial and warns him of something she's just dreamt. She advises, her husband, she advises her husband to leave this innocent man alone because he, she has suffered so terribly in this dream. In other words, it was a nightmare. No details are given. Another irony. The Jewish religious leadership want Yeshua to be guilty, but the Gentile woman knows He's innocent. How does she know this? A dream. See, biblically, God intervening or warning or simply passing along information in a dream has happened all throughout Hebrew history. But I think what's more interesting is how many times the dream method of divine communication occurred with a pagan Gentile who then brought the contents of that dream to a Hebrew to interpret. That is, God at times spoke to Gentiles and did so here with Pilate's wife. And I'll 
though there are other instances, how about Pharaoh and Joseph come to mind? as does Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. You know, we can even think of the Magi who were warned in a dream not to return to Herod with news of the location of the Christ child. I kind of like the way Daniel J. Harrington puts it in his commentary on Matthew. The Gentile woman's insights contrast with the spiritual obtuseness of the chief priests and the elders. True words, those. And so, yet another irony unfolds as verse 20 finds the chief or the senior priest leading a rally among the crowd to free Barabbas, but to have Jesus crucified. We must notice the issue of choice. A choice to choose the divine or the worldly a choice of evil or righteous. Who is this crowd? Well, it can only be Jews. Likely the bulk of them were the Jews of Judea, although some Jews from Galilee and other regions no doubt were present as well. And it's here that we are forced to deal with a really touchy subject. Are the Jews really the Christ killers? as they have regularly been cast within Christianity for century after century? Or as some Christians, and today Messianics especially, that fight against that notion are going to claim, no, it was really the Gentile Romans who killed Christ. I'd argue that Matthew shows us that both divisions of the world's population, Gentiles and Hebrews, are equally responsible if one chooses to look at it that way. But even then, only to a point, look, it is long past time to leave such a disingenuous debate in this very smelly dumpster of religious history. Should any modern Gentile Christian feel responsible for what Pontius Pilate did and condemning Jesus to the execution stake 2,000 years ago. Ah, should any modern Jew feel responsible for how the illegitimate high priest Caiaphas and several other Jewish men connived to get rid of Jesus back in the early part of the first century? Even more, notice how Matthew always focuses, rightly so, on the leadership. It was with the Jewish leaders that Yeshua always had a bone to pick. And he blamed them for the common Jews' lack of scripture knowledge and right doctrine, and therefore for the precarious spiritual condition it put them in. It was only the Gentile Roman prefect of Judea that condemned Christ to the cross. Even the Gentile Roman soldiers who were asked, uh, tasked with carrying it out were just following the orders from Roman leadership. It was not entirely of their own accord that the crowd of Jews cried for Christ's death instead of Barabbas's. They were deceived. They were egged on by the Jewish religious leadership that had brought Jesus to Pilate in the first place. None of us, none of us should look to people groups or nations or tribes in ancient times or in the future to place blame for Christ's death. From the moment Adam and Eve, of Adam and Eve's rebellious sin in the Garden of Eden, the day of Christ's death became necessary and it became a certainty. If we want to face facts, in a certain sense, all of us have had a part in his death because all of us have sinned and we must have a Redeemer if we are to have any hope. 
And the only way that redemption works is for sins to be paid for with blood. Now, to highlight the lack of understanding of the now frenzied Jewish crowd standing before Pilate, in verse 23, Pilate asked the crowd a question. Why should ex uh, Yeshua be executed? Asked Pilate. What crime has he committed? The response was not to answer the question. The crowd didn't answer the question, but rather they just, Double down on wanting Jesus dead. They want him dead because their leaders want him dead, and they need no more information than that. End of trial. Pilate could care less whether this one Jew lived or died. Pilate symbolically rinses his hands in a bowl of water, and he says, his hands are clean from the death of Jesus. Likely he did this because he understood that in Jewish culture, to wash one's hands in water is to ritually cleanse them to make them pure. It amounted to a declaration of ritual innocence. This was not a Roman custom. Pilate has just given in to the Jewish mob. And there is no semblance of justice going on here. He bears personal responsibility for what comes next that no amount of hand-washing is going to alleviate. Pilate announces to the crowd that this man's blood, his death, is on them. They enthusiastically respond that they accept the responsibility of the death of Yeshua, extending it so far as to include what amounts to a curse on their children because of being complicit in the death of an innocent man. See, this indeed has reciprocal spiritual and earthly consequences. It is here that the early institutional Gentile-controlled Christian church took their cue, deciding that the Jews are the true Christ killers. So a doctrine was contrived that said that as a consequence, God shifted His love and His blessings of His covenants from Israel to the Gentile church. Now, while I don't want to get too far into the matter of curses and, and the Jewish people, I cannot hide the elephant in the room. Just as the individual Jews in that crowd were responsible for their own personal responses to the choice put before them by Pontius Pilate, they are not somehow representative of all Jews alive in the first century. Yet there is no escaping how a curse affects future generations. I'd really like you to listen very carefully to what I have to say in the next couple of minutes here, please. It is not necessarily that God enforces a curse upon children and grandchildren and future descendants who had no hand in breaking a vow or in committing a crime against God. In fact, Scripture speaks against such a concept. Ezekiel 18, 4, and also verse 20. Look. All lives belong to me. Both the parent's life and the child's life are equally mine. So it is the person who sins himself who must die. The person who sins is the one that will die. A son is not to bear his father's guilt with him. Nor is the father to bear his son's guilt with him. But the righteousness of the righteous will be his own, and the wickedness of the wicked will be his own. See, the offspring doesn't bear the sins of their parents. But it is the circumstances that can be set into motion by parents that will necessarily and inevitably affect their offspring and descendants in a negative way. 
generally, generally along the lines of something that I think can be seen as natural or unavoidable consequences. For instance, none of us here that I know of committed a sin in the Garden of Eden. If you did, please raise your hand. You're expelled. Adam and Eve did that. Nonetheless, the natural consequence of what humanity's common parents did is that we all suffer from physical death and we face the possibility of eternal death if we don't accept God's redemptive mercy. Children from drug or alcohol addicted parents are far more likely to themselves become drug or alcohol addicted and then just pass it along to their children and so on. It's equally known that violently abusive parents or parents who wind up in gangs or parents who go to prison are more likely to produce children that do the same. I can't tell you how that works or how much, if any of it, is genetic or if it comes more down to the environment or the family system that children are raised into. See, in ancient times, these sorts of things were often explained in terms like generational curses. Now, we moderns, well, we don't like to deal in things like curses because it just sounds too primitive. So we give these sometimes inexplicable realities other names, or we assign them psychological terms. The point is this. These sorts of decisions and choices by parents especially as it concerns a relationship with God. Choices like we read about from that Jewish crowd on that fateful Passover morning are going to have far-reaching effects they'll never realize and probably won't live to see. And their children and even later generations may not understand or that heavy ball of oppression that seems to follow them around was first given its push. I mean, we all probably like to firewall off one generation from another, like kind of turning the page to a new chapter in a book or changing the channel on a TV. But the Bible, and merely living long enough to observe it, provide sufficient proof this is not how life works in this present age. How much better it would have been for the many future generations of Jews had the Jewish crowds yelling for Yeshua's death refused to accept those phony verdicts of their own Jewish religious leaders as well as that of their Roman prefect Pontius Pilate in order to kill an innocent man and instead have recognized him for who he was. How much better it would have been had their ears and minds listened and obeyed and been more open to the truth of God's word and to the presence and to the saving power of God's Son than to the comfortable human attraction of man-made tradition or to the narcotic of custom, or the naive certainty that the religious leaders must be the objective holders of divine truth and righteousness. See, the curse the crowd put upon itself for the blood of their Messiah has most definitely affected millions of Jews that would come later, not because those who would come later are also cursed of God for something they didn't do, something they're not responsible for, but because sin is infectious. And because when people are wrongly taught what they are wrongly taught by previous generations, it has a ripple effect across time. 
just like throwing a stone into the waters of a pond and watching how it disrupts the calmness of it, how the waves rebound off the edges and then race to the middle and collide again to continue on the effects. Parents, parents, future parents, the curse you place upon yourselves for refusing to accept your Savior to not live righteously and thus to withhold from your children a truth you could have known, but you chose not to. That is more apt than not to carry over to your children and to your grandchildren and beyond. They may well be cursed by your curse, even though that's not what you intend. Okay, we'll continue in chapter 27 next time.